Hi, and welcome to Liberating Libraries, a podcast by the Conspiracy of Equality. My name is Blake. And my name is Caitlin. And if you'd like to know more about the Conspiracy of Equality, you can check out our website, liberatinglibraries.org, or you can find us on Instagram at liberating.libraries. So, it's December. It's December, and it's the end of 2019. It's the end of the decade! Well, yeah, but also the end of a really shitty year. Yeah, and wasn't it just capped off yesterday by <sighs> the ascendancy of Boris Johnson to supermajority government in the UK? Yeah, that's a little cherry on top of the year, and we don't need to talk about that right now because I'm sure there'll be lots to say later. So for the end of the year, we thought we would do a mini episode looking at some of the books that we read this year. Some of the stuff that we thought was really good, some of the stuff that didn't work so well for us, and getting into thinking about what we're going to be reading, what we want to read in the upcoming year for ourselves personally, and then for this podcast, the kinds of themes that we want to tackle in 2020. So um, one of the things that we've, uh, we've put out there for folks who are listening is if you have suggestions of books or topics that you want to see us cover on this podcast, we um, are really interested in hearing your thoughts. So you can uh, message us on Instagram or comment on any of our posts or comment on uh, any of our posts on the website as well. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so we're starting with, um, with just a rundown of our top three books. Yeah. So I actually had a lot harder time getting my top three than I think you did this year. I felt like the even though I probably read a little bit less fiction this year than I know than I have the last few years, I read like quite a few books that I really really enjoyed and really really liked. Mm-hmm. So it was definitely a difficult to bring me down into the top three. I actually had the opposite problem. Well, sort of the opposite problem of I had a hard time picking the top three because I looked at my list and realized that I read a lot of books this year that didn't actually, that I didn't actually enjoy that much. Yeah. 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 That's kind of funny how the reading cycles will kind of do that, right? Yeah. So I think like for me, the, the book I enjoyed probably the most, um, was The Old Drift by, uh, Nawali Serpel. It's a generational novel that looks at three families going back three generations It's set in Zambia from kind of just before independence um, up until, like, kind of the near future. And it is just a really terrific read that I think she does a lot of work of trying to, like, unpack and tell, like, this history. And then also fluidly moves this kind of historical novel into this speculative fiction novel. Mm. And I think, like, the way she kind of builds that in there... It's just absolutely terrific. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember while you were reading it, you were talking, and I had thought that it was a book that was all historical, and then you started talking about how it's it's gone into the future, and I was just like, that's a that like that's a fantastic mashup to do in a book. I'm really excited to read it. Yeah, like I just like and I just like how fluid it happened, like mm-hmm. how like it didn't feel like there was any kind of moment of like jarring, being like, oh, this is not the same book, but it was just like it was just so fluid and just so eased into the way this kind of like speculative future starts to happen. Mm-hmm. It was really good. And I think there's just like, there's a lot to unpack both kind of the ways in which revolutionary movements impacted early Zambia, followed by kind of like the collapse and IMF 
kind of restrictions that came out in the 80s and 90s, as well as the same time the a- HIV AIDS virus sort mm-hmm. of hit. Um, and and kind of leaves you into this sense of like this current moment of like what is possible. And I think she she opens that door and she gives you that that window. Mm-hmm. Um, I won't say it's like a super happy ending, but I think it's an ending that has a lot more hope in it than some of the other novels that that I've read. Mm. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, so my top pick for this year um, is probably Spring by Ali Smith. So this is the third in a four-part series. It's the it's a seasonal quartet, is what she's called it. Um, so so far, she's published uh, Autumn, Winter, and Spring, and I've read all three. Um, and uh, I don't know if I'd say Spring is my favorite of the three, but it was it was sort of one of the these top books that I read this year. It was, I think it was my favorite book to read this year. And it's sort of on point with what we were just joking about because she's a Scottish author um, and she is kind of writing this, uh, this quartet of novels in a post-Brexit mindset in the UK. And she's kind of, I think, trying to elaborate like what it means to be alive in the UK after after Brexit to be just a regular person, but then to be in um, in all of these like situations of change and fluctuation and um, and all of the intense politics of what's happening in that place. But she's doing it in this really what I think of as like a really interesting like there's a lot of interesting uses of language and like playing with the form of the writing. In all three books, and I think Spring kind of does that a little bit more, um, I've read a couple things about her writing style where she's really interested in in things like collage and other kinds of art forms um, and visual arts and how that looks in writing. And so there's a lot of like fun play there. But I guess the, the big thing for me for Spring and why that was... Um, it's it's so I think it's so interesting of the of the three so far is that it's the most political of the three. It's the one that's being most directly confrontational to the kind of border politics and the kind of xenophobia that Brexit has mm. that Brexit is embedded in. Um, she really so in spring she takes on border um, borders and detention. So the one of the main characters is a guard in a detention center, and the sort of main driving force of action is um, essentially this this girl, this figure who's kind of going around and essentially like liberating people from detention. It's a bit more complicated than that, and I can't really get into all of the detail of it. But there's a lot of discussion around around that kind of politics and also the kind of the birth of possibilities I think is the thing that that comes through in spring so that, I mean all 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 three books are very situated in the sort of thematic of their season autumn was very much about change winter was very much I think about death and then spring is very much about opportunity about possibility hmm. so I'm curious to see what summer's going to look like especially given you know, all these recent turns. I don't know if she's already written it. Um, it hasn't been published yet, but um, I'm curious to see what she's going to do with it and how she's going to carry that forward. Yeah, I mean, I think that's interesting. I mean, I, I have read Autumn and Winter, and I was not enthralled with them. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I mean, that's just personal kind of differences in, I think, reading form and style. Um, so who knows? I might, I might try to give Spring a try because... 
the premise sounds more interesting than what the other two were for me. So mm-hmm. no promises, though. <laughs> <laughs> like, I found Winter a bit of a slog to get through, even though it was such a short novel. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I think for me, the other... The other big standout that was easy to be like, okay, this one goes into my top three, was Mean Spirit by Linda Hogan. So this was a book that was written, I believe, in 91. Um, and it's a it's a historical fiction based on a true account of um, uh, indigenous, like American Indians or indigenous people in Oklahoma um, who weren't originally from there but had already been settled there, were given what was thought to be really terrible land in comparison to what the actual settlers got at the time. However, their land ended up having rivers and rivers of oil underneath it. Mm. She's just doing a really amazing job of sort of unpacking what happens and like the ways in which the settlers through both direct violence and bureaucracy um, make the, the lives of these indigenous people completely untenable. Yeah, and it, it just, it was such a good book. Like, it was so vibrant. Um, it was actually kind of difficult to read because it was happening at the same time as Trudeau had sent the RCMP into mm. um, the territories in BC. Wet'suwet'en. Wet'suwet'en um, at, at, in BC. And there was just, like, there was this moment in the book that, like, really mirrored very closely what was happening. Mm. And it was just like, it, it was such a powerful kind of moment to have kind of these two things collide. So even though this book is set a hundred years in the past, it was just being brought right into the future, like by the very new stream in front of me. Um, it was really, really good. I, I really, really enjoyed it. I felt it like it was just like both in like its style, like it was just a smooth, smooth style. Um, and the characters and it was a really wonderful book and I don't know, I'm kind of rambling, but like it also just the resilience of folks in these situations, um, to just keep going on and keep struggling and keep trying to bring their, their lives together and what they believe kind of together while all of these powers among them are just working to destroy their lives. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, it, it was, yeah, I I really, really enjoyed this book. Yeah. Yeah, and that kind of speaks to a number of the themes um, in my second pick for favorite book of the year, which was The Marrow Thieves by Sherry mm-hmm. DeMoline. And um, this is a book that uh, it, it was just, it was one of those books that just left me with like, there were moments there where I was just like absolutely gutted and moments of like intense emotion. Um, it's actually a young adult novel, uh, but it just, I think it's, it's, it's cross-generational. It's, it's yeah. written in a style where it's so accessible for like young adults to read, but it's also everything in it is deeply emotional and impactful and like important to read no matter what age you are. So it's like, it really captures a lot of that intergenerational spirit. Um, so it's, uh, Sherry Dimeline is Métis and um, it's written, uh, it's kind of a post-apocalypse, um, post-climate change novel um, that looks at the, uh, that looks at this um, group of indigenous folks who are trying to survive in Canada post-climate um, change. 
and they come together and they're drawn together in different ways um, and and build a community together to survive. And there's a specific situation around um, indigenous people are being hunted and uh, put into concentration camps essentially to extract their dreams because that's something that, uh, that non-indigenous folks have lost. And so um, there's a lot of parallels, like you can see it very, like very much parallel stories around residential school systems and like the the extractivism that, that happens through colonialism. But I think what's most brilliant about it is the way that it's actually about the creation of these communities and the use of systems and knowledge and knowledge forms and uh, kin systems and systems of, of, of being in the world that are drawn out of history and drawn from all these traditions that have been kept and, and preserved and like that people have maintained through fighting colonialism for so long and are able to build these like resilient ways to survive and to be together and to build community. And um, I think one of the things that spoke to me most, I remember as like almost like a third of the way in, I was just like, this is the story that I wish that I wish had gone alongside something like um, Parable of the Sower mm. when I first read it. Yeah. Because um, when we were reading Parable of the Sower, which is a, a book by Octavia Butler that deals with a lot of very similar themes, but um, is, is about California and kind of completely scripts out indigenous people from her view of California. And um, and it was just like, this is it. This ans this is this is a book that's answering that question that we had about like, but what would the people who have been resisting colonialism be doing in this situation? And this is this is part of that answer, I think. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I think that's yeah, putting those together mm -hmm. is a really, really smart thing to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I also read The Marrow Thieves and thoroughly enjoyed it. Like I think it does everything that you are explaining and like it's a really beautiful book mm -hmm. and like and and just it's such an easy read and like just it just captures you mm -hmm. right from the outset and you just you have to finish it it's mm -hmm. like it is gutting though and yeah. there are parts of it that are just like they will stay with you they will yeah they will so the last book on my list and this was the hardest one because i feel there were three books that i just really also kind of enjoyed in the same way mm. um so the book I, I finally chose was the sympathizer by uh vietan nagoyan nagoyan i am probably butchering that i should have done a google to learn how to say it first but i didn't um i think the reason why i finally settled on that one is the style is is the style is the fact that it's a like i like first person novels i think are kind of hard to get right but I think mm. this one does does a good job of doing that. I like the complexity of the story. Um, was really really good. It follows the narrator who is a is a double agent. So during the Vietnam War, so he is in Southern Vietnam and works for kind of the Southern Vietnam government as well as like the Americans. But it's actually a spy for the North Vietnamese Army. Mm -hmm. um, so after the fall of so so the first kind of bit is him in. Vietnam as Vietnam as Saigon is falling to the North Vietnamese um, and then kind of most of the other book is about him in America where he continues to be a spy for the Vietnamese government while living in the States um, and you're just getting this kind of this good sense of 
I don't know if like the hypocrisy of the American dream mm-hmm. that 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 he sees and like that you know the other refugees who don't know that he's a spy are struggling with and just this complexity of this of what this identity actually is in the US um as well as like kind of like this sort of desire to be back in this imaginative homeland that both the refugees who are vehement, like vehemently anti-communist and who and himself who is very pro-communist like neither ideal of what they think Vietnam is actually exists mm-hmm. um, yeah I just felt it was a really really good book when I was reading it I really enjoyed it yeah yeah it was fantastic I, I agree with yeah. that one I also read it and uh, yeah it just it just captures so much of his internal struggle that's also about all of these struggles with these external forces that he has so little control over and the mm-hmm. things that he's pushed into doing it's also very funny and at times yes it's a very funny book um, and you wouldn't think that it would be but it is yeah. and yeah in, in, a, in a really compelling way. So then the last one on my list is actually, um, I actually just put down my reread of Cities of Salt. So earlier uh, this year, we did a podcast episode uh, looking at um, The Grapes of Wrath and Cities of Salt uh, by Abdulrahman Munif. And I had, we had both read it previously. And so this summer, I decided to, I actually started to go through it to look for notes for the podcast. And then I just like started reading it. Mm-hmm. And I'm surprised that to say this because I don't reread books very often. Like I can count on my hand the number of books I've reread. And um, I thoroughly enjoyed rereading Cities of Salt. I was not bored by any of it. I was not like I was not anticipating a lot of uh, a lot of things and sort of, you know, trying to get to those those big points. I think the style of the book and the slowness of the story and the buildup and the intricacy of how things are building in the story, which we talked about in the podcast, all lends itself to a reread in a way that a lot of books don't. So I'm not going to say a whole lot about it because we talked about it in a previous episode, but um, yeah, it was a surprise to me and I really, really enjoyed rereading it. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I've read very, reread very, very few novels. Mm-hmm. Like, very few. So, yeah, that's interesting. It's a commitment to reread something because there's so much to read that it's like, how do you actually pick the things that you're going to read yeah. a second time? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's good. So, that's the top three. Mm-hmm. Um, so, now we jump into books we least enjoyed. Yeah. Slash outright hated this year. Oh, yeah. And why. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, there's got to be some in there. That's, there is. Um, at the very least, the book that you least enjoyed. But then I think for both of us, there these are both books that we had serious, serious issues with. Yeah. Um, so, who, do you want to start first? Do you want to start yours first? Because yours was do worse. You're, you really, <laughs> really fucking hated your book. I, I <laughs> detested my book with all the passion that I have. Um, so, my, my, the book that I least enjoyed was called um, El Murmullo de las Abejas, which is The Murmur of Bees, um, and it's by uh, Sofia Segovia who's a Mexican author. And um, I was initially excited about this because I I enjoy reading books in Spanish. 
And I was excited about that, and I was also excited to read it because it, it is set during the Mexican Revolution in the 1910s and 20s. And um, the story presented itself as being about like the changes that are underway for landowners and over, over the land in that time period during the revolution. And there was supposed to be some elements of magical realism involved in it. And it just seemed like a really interesting plot. Turns out that it was a pile of reactionary bullshit. <laughs> and I'm actually just going to say it that way. It was just a pile of reactionary bullshit. Um, the central theme of the book seemed to be that um, that land reform is wrong and that peasants shouldn't be uppity and should stay yeah. in their place. Like that was actually the central message of the book. Um, the element that was magical realism actually just turned out to be ableism. Um, that they had uh, created, she had created a character who... Um, who had um, a speech impediment and wasn't, wasn't able to communicate and that that led him to have a, some, a relate and he had a relationship with bees um, that sounded at first like it could be interesting, but it just turned into this like ableist narrative of this mystical um, disabled character who is able to like see things that other people can't see or something like that. Like it was, it was, it was very um, simplistic. Um, I've also since then kind of thought about it more and read a bit more about how it kind of fits into a style of writing that is actually very geared towards sort of middle class white women mm. in Latin America that kind of tell stories about their histories, about the kind of families that they come from or the kind of the kind of places and people that they're connected to. And that seemed actually really quite in line. So the main um, the main antagonist in the story, and he's entirely written as an antagonist, is this uh, is this campesino who lives on um, on the land that the that the landowner character owns, who um, wants his own land. Like that's his driving motivation is that he wants his own land and wants to be free from from the control of El Patron. He wants to be free. And that's the driving thing that makes him an antagonist. It's just I felt compelled to finish it and I did finish it. And it was the worst thing. One of the worst things I've ever read. Yeah, you hated that book. <laughs> like when you say you felt compelled, I don't know if compelled is the right word to finish it. Because I think there were a couple times where it's just like. Just keep going, right? Like, sometimes this is the thing about Latin American fiction. It's really dense and long, but, like, it, it'll get you there. It'll get you there. And, like, so I think I was kind of coaxing you to finish it. And then finally you were just like, you, you finished just like, no, it does not get any better. I think to be, to be more serious about it and to bring it back to, like, the purpose of this podcast. Yeah. I think what it failed, like the reason why I was so angry about it wasn't just that it was a it was badly written or that it was a boring story. It's that it like failed to act in the story that it was telling. It failed to do anything other than react to upheaval, to react to pressure on the status quo. Yeah. Right? So it and when I say reactionary, I think that's the thing that like pissed me off the most about it is the use of art for reaction, I think, is, is a really, like, that's a really offensive thing to me, to use art and to use creativity to react to liberation struggles. It's like the antithesis of everything that yeah. we're talking about in this podcast. So, yeah, don't read that. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So my book is not as intense. It's not reactionary. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's just like I had such high hopes for it, and it was so bad that it just made me really, really dislike it. So the book is The Book of Joan by Lydia Yukenovich. Um So it, it kind of sells itself as a retelling of the Joan of Arc in the era of climate change. So it's kind of about this young woman who is set in, in the near future when basically there are climate wars starting as well as like dire climate changes starting. And she finds out that she has this incredible power um, where she can become part of the earth, in particular in, in, in like battles. So like she can actually attach herself to the earth and then blow up kind of like the enemy lines behind it by like having a tree explode or something to that effect. Okay. Um, so there's that story and then there's a story that's in the future from that telling of it where it's taking place on a spaceship that has the last remaining vestiges of human humanity who are ultra wealthy and just like morally corrupt. Mm. So that story, that that particular story had some kind of interesting things happening to it. Um, right? Like the, there was no paper. So like as acts of resistance to kind of like this fascist society that they lived in, they burned stories onto their body. Mm. So like that was interesting and I told an interesting story, but it I just felt it ultimately became just stupid. Yeah, so like it became stupid, it became just like poorly written. It was jumping all over the place and like it just like didn't like her timeline just didn't make sense because eventually like you find out that Joan in a fit of rage basically uses her power to destroy the world. And that's why people have to leave. That's why, like, people kind of flee out. Mm-hmm. But, like, it's not explained why she does this or, like, like necessarily what are the steps that are built up to get her to a place where she does this. It's just understood that it happens. Um, as well as it just... It was just anti-politics, mm-hmm. right? So, like, the ending of it is that Joan survives and her lover survives. And there are people in the world that who, who do, do survive this but who are living in tunnels under the ground. And it ends by her realizing that, like, with her power, that she can actually basically become the Earth and regenerate the Earth. It's caught up into the savior complex, Mm -hmm. where it's just, like, just one person is going to fix all our problems. Um, Which was just so incredibly disappointing. As well as, like, the story in in the sky. It was fine. It ends with the kind of, like, the the heroes, the protagonists winning this battle and then just setting the spaceship to fly into the sun. So it's, like, all the rich people go and die. Mm -hmm. Which, like, sure, that was enjoyable. But, like, it it just didn't fit. It didn't flow. And like you say, like in the purposes of kind of like this podcast, it's just it's just simply anti-politics. Mm-hmm. It's just like there is nothing that you could grasp onto that to be like, oh, like this will help my understanding of the world. Because like it was an interesting premise of a story, mm-hmm. right? Like I wanted it to be better. Yeah. And like it kind of speaks to as well, like, like um, my book is intentionally reactive, intentionally reactionary. But there is an unintentional reactionary um, element that comes to that kind of anti-politics writing Mm -hmm. and anti-politics storytelling that I think you can fall into really easily in speculative and science fiction. 
in, yeah. into kind of an anti-politics, into a sort of um, either primitivism or like savior complex type of story. And, and yeah, it's, it's disappointing. So our next, our next question was kind of just a, a side question that I had thrown in there to see if there was any anything we could tease out of it, uh, this idea of what, whether there was a book you read this year that you felt helped contextualize or process anything specific about the current political moment. I mean, the crap year that was of 2019. Mm -hmm. um, I really wasn't sure if I had an answer to this question when I wrote it. Um, I don't know if the answer came quickly to you or if it was something that you had to, that you're still unsure of. No, my answer came pretty quickly to mm. me. Yeah. So like I, I felt two books did, um, one in a really depressing way and one in like another way. So the other one is Berlin, um, by Jason Lutz that we talked about when we talked about fascism. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I really enjoyed that novel. I also like for me, I felt that it helped me take some mo take a moment to actually think about like what does it mean to build our movements against fascism against the far right and i think i felt myself almost falling into the trap of the main character like beating myself up and thinking like i personally have to save everything um rather than no movements have to save it movements have to do it mm. and if we don't and if we try to like fall into I personally have to save everything. We're not going to get anywhere really fast. Um, so I felt that one actually helped me a lot. Like, I, I really enjoyed Berlin for that purpose. Um, and then the other one that I think kind of falls into, like, the way kind of where you are is um, Gold Fame Citrus, which is the dystopian climate change novel set mm -hmm. in California. Um it's super depressing. Oh my god, so depressing. Like really, really depressing. But I don't know. It it also helped me. I don't know if "helped" is the right word, and I don't even know if this novel is necessarily the right one for this question. But I think it's just like it's going to be a, such a slow change and rapid change at the same time. I know that's contradictory to what I just said, mm -hmm. but it's just like the, the, for us to kind of approach and reapproach and struggle to realize the ways in which our lives are changing under climate change is so slow and so reactive and just so impossible that we don't necessarily see it happening mm. while at the same time you do have this like giant thing happening of the climate change actually happening i don't know i just felt that the way in which she kind of presents that the way in which she presents sort of like the state falling apart and basically people are just kind of left to like run their own thing, do their own thing. It's really depressing, mm -hmm. but it's also just like, if we don't do something, I can really see, I can see the truth in what she is saying. Yeah. I know that's not really a far, like interesting thought that it's kind of out there, but it's just like, I, I think I do put that in there. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know if that makes sense, but I really enjoyed it. Yeah. I and think, it helped. I think 
Yeah, I think it makes sense. And it's like, it's interesting because the book that I, I picked for this question is the other book that we talked about in the same episode that we talked about Gold Fame Citrus, which is um, American War, um, which is also a book about climate change. It's um, also about a sort of dystopian future. Um, under conditions of climate change. But I think in the podcast, we talked more about how it's maybe less about climate change and more about the American way of war and the consequences of American warfare. And I think I think we talked through a lot of the limitations of it for actually um, helping us un unpack what's happening in uh, the south of the United States, in the U.S. Uh, south, which is where it's set. But one of the things that it really helped me put... Um, put some language to and put some thought to was actually more about what's happening in the Canadian context. Mm. And I remember us talking in the podcast about how there's ways that what's happening in American war, we can kind of see similar dynamics happening in Alberta and Saskatchewan and, and everything that's coming up there. And it just helped, I think, for me, put some of that into language of like what is so upsetting about it and what's so like not funny about it because there's a lot that we can say is really funny about Wexit and there's a lot that's just like this is not funny this is actually really scary yeah absolutely yeah. I think the last thing we wanted to talk about is um, where do we go from here mm -hmm. what does the podcast look like in 2020 um, so in other words what is our 2020 vision <laughs> because you're the only person who's going to be making that joke <laughs> all right so what is our vision for 2020? So we have a few ideas of things that we want to kind of tackle or like areas of literature we want to we want to look at. Um, and I think we we picked sort of three of those to kind of put out there and, and explain sort of what, what our thinking is. So I guess the first one um, that that I think I would really like to to explore is actually reading literature that's um, that's about pleasure. Hmm. and about the claiming of pleasure and you know pleasure can be um, defined in many different ways and it can be sexual and it can be like pleasures derived from other kinds of joy um, but I think one of the things that I've noticed in a lot of literature is that um, is that we don't get to see enough about enough literature about groups that are marginalized or groups that we typically read about in terms of like tragedy porn. We don't get to see enough of their of literature where folks from those groups are reclaiming pleasure and just taking pleasure. And um, I think that there's like interesting examples of times when when I've seen that happen. Um, I think particularly for me, I think about authors like Jamaica Kincaid who's um, even though their stories and like the novels that she writes are incredibly sad and have like incredibly difficult stuff in them there's also these like very very strong powerful characters who are are taking pleasure and are like insisting on their on their yeah on their claim to the things that they want and even in the face of of a story that ends up being incredibly tragic but I think that there's probably more out there that we could explore um, yeah. that looks at these at these issues that isn't just sort of always kind of lamenting the struggles um, that's celebratory about the pleasure that people can take. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think there's definitely stuff out there um, that we can find, and I think I think that's a, a an interesting point. And like, pleasure is not bad. 
mm-hmm. and people seek out pleasure in the most difficult of circumstances and that's something that is important to talk about and think about and embrace and make sure we find spaces for so i think that's a really good it would be a good topic i think for me i want to read more books about work work is something that comprises at least a third of our lives <laughs> probably more probably more <laughs> Uh, but but it kind of gets ignored in so much of literature. Mm-hmm. Um, either the characters are wealthier, or you, that's not the part of the life that you're you're reading about. It's just like they go to work and then they come home. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas I think work and what work does to our social relations is so important. It'd be interesting to try to find stories about work that don't necessarily like. I mean. We're not going to talk about Steinbeck anymore, so we're going to find other different types of stories and authors that look at him. And I think one of the ones that I was thinking of is Chester Himes, who is a black author from, I believe he wrote in the from the 40s to the 60s. Um, and one of the novels that I had read by him is If He Hollers. And it is this rapid-paced book set over, I think it's about two days, of kind of the sort of almost collapse of this this Walder's life. It, it's during, set during World War II. He's working on a dockyard. And, like, there are large portions that are just describing both the work that he's doing as well as the fact of racism in the workplace on what he's doing and how he has to try to negotiate that and kind of fails to negotiate that, um, which ends up leading to a spiral downwards of his life. And I just, I, th- I think it's... I think work is just an, a really important thing and like good writing about the workplace is for me very enjoyable to read but it's also I just think really important stories to tell. Mm-hmm. I think broadening the scope of where the workplace is yeah. and what kinds of workplaces we look at is also really something we want to explore. So we've recently um, come across an author whose works I think look really interesting and, and we were, we're going to try reading some of them, um, Tash Ah, and I again apologize if I'm mispronouncing that, who is um, a Malaysian writer. Um, I think he lives in, or he, he is British, um, I believe, but um, Malaysian-British. And uh, he writes about sort of uh, a lot of the effects of, of capital, like the increase of capital and change on um, class and work in the Asian context and sort of what's happening right now in sort of with the rapid kind of uh, industrialization and increase in capital, mm-hmm. but also these like rapid, rapid increases in inequality and in the working conditions of people living in places like Malaysia, where there is just like extreme wealth disparity and also like so much of the work that actually fuels the global economy is happening. And actually, I was I was thinking about it, and it was like making me making me think. Um, reflecting back on an essay that we read, an interview with uh, Tasha, it was making me reflect on *Parasite*, the movie oh, yeah. that we just saw, which is just like it's it's so it was amazing. I am amazed by that movie, but it's just such a brilliant like portrait of all of this like complex class dynamics. Mm-hmm. In, in this context in Korea that you just... If we could find Parasite as a novel, yeah. I think is exactly what we want to talk about, right? Yeah. Because, like, <laughs> that movie does do so much to, like, talk about this rapid inequality and, like, yeah, like, just the, the, the effect that 
this inequality has on workers, on families, on the way workers are pitted against each other, mm-hmm. and these amazing, this like really beautiful, and intelligent and smart and entertaining way. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, and then I think the last one um, that we're going to talk about. So uh, we had written down um, both looking at African futurism, which is uh, I think the name I most associate with it is Nnedi Okofor. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also indigenous futurism, which um, some I think some people put Sherry Dumoulin in this category. Yep. Um, there's also been like a bunch of different uh, anthologies that have come out recently of indigenous science fiction, indigenous futurism. And um, I read an article recently uh, talking about uh, indigenous futurism and sort of reflecting on two key points around it, which is the first is like, putting people, putting indigenous people into science fiction. Yeah. Kind of what I was talking about with um, the Marrow Thieves in relation to the parable of the sower, but then also normalizing indigenous knowledge Mm. as like another kind of science that can be the foundation for science fiction, right? So that that the science in science fiction doesn't have to be Western science. Yeah. Yeah, and I think um, for me, African futurism is falls into some very similar things. Mm-hmm. So African futurism is different than Afrofuturism. Yes. Um, and again, I, I don't actually know that much about it. It's it's been something that's been tossed around a lot. Um, but I just think it's really interesting. So like, yeah, like my like kind of base understanding of African futurism is very similar to what you had just said. But it's also like set in Africa, like on the continent. So it's giving voice to people who generally are forgotten about and not heard, um, giving, setting them in science fiction because there will be science and life in Africa. Um, yeah, and I, 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 I just want to learn more about it mm-hmm. um, and be able to talk intelligently, not like I just did. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, And I've heard the old drift as some people are talking about how that book fits into African futurisms. Mm. So I think it, yeah, I think it could be quite interesting because and it's an important idea in science fiction to and speculative fiction to reimagine who we imagine the future to include and like who we imagine having futures and like that's a big theme that i've heard in afrofuturism and i imagine it in african futurism as well and it's about yeah it's it's kind of like you said like it's also about in place so it's not about like the desire to go to america Mm -hmm. but it's just like no this is our home what does that look like what does that science fiction look like Absolutely. All right. So this is probably a longer episode than I initially thought it was going to be. Yeah. I don't know how you thought that it was going to be short. Us talking about what? Eight, nine books? <laughs> like, of course, we like, of course, it was going to be longer than what we thought it was Thought you thought it was going to be. <laughs> um, but thanks for listening and indulging us in our discussion of things that we read. Um, you can also uh, see the full list. Uh, we're going to be posting them on Instagram so you can get the full list of uh, all the books that we talked about. Well, the good books that we talked about. Yeah, the good books we talked about. I mean, we'll probably do the cheesy, the like these are all the books we read this year and posted on there as well. So you can also see like everything that we've read this year. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so in terms of asks going forward, uh, you know, like we, um, like we said at the beginning, if you have suggestions, we'd love to hear them. We're also really interested in getting feedback on Mm -hmm. the podcast in terms of like style, how we, how we present things, um, what, 
you know, how we talk about things? Do we need to like go more in depth on certain things or like explain other things better? Uh, and then also if you're able to leave a rating or review on iTunes and like I think that other apps allow you to do that, but I don't actually know how that works. So yeah. you can you can see and if you can, please leave us a rating or a review. Yes, that would be great. And share with your friends. That's true. So on that note, I guess it's uh, happy solstice. Happy solstice. Happy whatever holiday you celebrate this time of year or happy end of year. Yeah. And we will see you in the new year. Oh, we won't see you. We'll probably, you'll probably hear from us. In the you'll new hear year. from us in the new year. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Bye. Bye-bye. Music for this podcast is by Ketza from their album Metamorphosis. You can find them at the Free Music Archive or at ketzamusic.com. Music